When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Bob Dylan is a seeker, a seer, even a prophet, who changed and still changes the times, perceptions, and the very purpose of how we live. This is Stephen Daniel Arnoff. I'm the host and creator of Bob Dylan, about man and God and law, the podcast, and also author of the book about man and God and law, The Spiritual Wisdom of Bob Dylan. And this book is about Dylan's voice, his purpose as the most insightful and provocative spiritual figure in the history of popular music. Theme by theme, listening closely to upwards of 50 of his songs and by placing Dylan in the flow of culture and religion from the past 500 years. I don't know of another book like this about Bob Dylan or any other pop figure, and that's why I wrote it. About Man and God and Law has been called a journey in enchantment, soulful, a revelation, and a must-have by early reviewers. I thank them for that. And I want you to read my book, too. It's available as an ebook beginning December 7, 2021, and in print in bookstores and online everywhere on May 3, 2022. You can even pre-order it at Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Now, for listeners to this podcast and their pals, if you stop by my website, mangodlaw.com, and sign up, I'll send you a free copy of the ebook. That's right, free and easy. All you got to do is post a review once you've read it. Like it, love it, hate it, just rate it. That's up to you. For a limited time only, come and get it. He not busy reading is busy dying, right? You know that. So visit mangodlaw.com for a free ebook and join the conversation. Thanks for listening. Thanks for reading. And now, back to the show. Dylan was, he was a revolutionary, man. The way that, the way that Elvis... Freed your body, Bob. Freed your mind. This is Bob Dylan about man and God and law. You know what I see? I see a little bit of Elvis in each and every one of you out there. Let me tell you. Well, Elvis is everywhere. Elvis is everything. Elvis is everybody. Elvis is still the king. Man, oh man, what I want you to see. Got the big things out of you and me. Yes, sir, that's right. And uh, uh, I'd like to say uh, the word that... Uh, Mojo Nixon sings a tune called Elvis is Everywhere. It's a tongue-in-cheek deification of the king, Elvis, who seemed to pop up all over the place in the 80s and 90s. He was in people's dreams and in tabloid headlines, an impersonator at a wedding, or in a television commercial. You might remember This is Elvis a TV series chasing down his history, which was narrated by an Elvis impersonator as if it was Elvis himself speaking. 
And then what do you know? There was Elvis buying a Slurpee at the 7-Eleven down the street just a few minutes later. Elvis was a pop culture mythic force documented by buzz-seeking journalists and intellectuals alike. Evidence of the hunger in American culture to meet gods and angels in dreams and oracles, just like believers would meet the divine long, long ago. When I look into your eyes out there, Mojo Nixon sang, when I look into your faces, you know what I see? I see a little bit of Elvis in each and every one of you out there. Let me tell you, well, Elvis is everywhere. Today, as a force in popular culture, as as the baby boomers have aged and pop culture itself has become ever more stratified by demographics and genres and platforms, Elvis is no longer everywhere. But Bob Dylan is. At the decidedly non-pop age of 79, which is nearly double Elvis's age at death, Dylan has had the number one pop song in the land with Murder Most Foul. Look to the chatter where the wheels of pop culture turn. Choose almost any point of view, biographical, political, religious, literary, musical, philosophical, or historical, and the chances are that it's being used to explain Bob Dylan and his work. Hundreds of books, thousands of articles, and an ever-expanding universe of listservs, websites, magazines, academic courses, and conferences sing Dylan's loyal chorus of commentary. Edging towards his seventh decade on the public stage, Dylan continues to wave his baton in every direction, urging the chorus onward, even if we know he's not much for choruses. Dylan's work has repercussions not only for those of us still fascinated by his continuing contribution to popular culture, but also for anyone who cares about how popular culture shapes the world. I've got my back to the sun because the light is too intense, Dylan sings in Sugar Baby. I can see what everybody in the world is up against. You can't turn back. You can't come back. Sometimes we push too far. One day, you'll open up your eyes and you'll see where we are. For more than half a century, trying to understand Dylan's songs has been for many like unfolding the crisscrossing lines of a map of the entire world. Well, we're going to take a shot at reading those maps, particularly in a moment where the world we thought we knew seems like uncharted territory. I'm Stephen Daniel Arnoff, and this is Bob Dylan about man and God and law, a podcast that tells the story of how Bob Dylan sparked a revolution of spirit and why it matters. To open up our eyes to the music of Bob Dylan and not only see where we really are, but where we need to go. So welcome to episode one of Bob Dylan about man and God and law. Salvation. To be or not to be, that is the question. Now, long before the unlikely chart-topper Murder Most Foul expounded upon a line from Hamlet to offer strange comfort to a world jolted by COVID-19 and protests and riots against racism in the spring of 2020, 
Bob Dylan was searching for salvation in a limousine, hurtling across the British countryside. The year was 1965. Dylan and his posse had taken their places in a dreamlike reflection on the silver screen in a scene imagined in Todd Haynes' 2007 film based on Dylan's songs and story. The film is called I'm Not There. But let's give this context some context. By 1965, Dylan had become the most important cultural figure of the 20th century. This was the period of his most concentrated and fierce creative influence. In the span of just 15 months, March 1965 to May 1966, Dylan released three of the greatest rock albums of all time, Bringing It All Back Home, Highway 61 Revisited, and Blonde on Blonde. His songwriting and recording were feverishly prolific. He had taken on ambitious publishing and film projects, and took part in an exhausting live tour spanning four continents backed by a crew of road warriors who would later become known as the band. The shows on this tour, documented in D.A. Pennebaker's pioneering rock doc Don't Look Back, included a first set of solo acoustic renditions of epic musical dreamscapes that had shattered the mold of songwriting for pop by the time Dylan was 23, and then a scorching set of angry, loud rock that anticipated the punks, just as those punks were getting their first guitars. In the UK, the period that Haynes's film calls upon vividly, there were walkouts, heckling, and even a famous shout of Judas in Manchester. As reimagined in I'm Not There, Dylan passes the time on a long ride inside the quiet hum of a black limo. A well-dressed journalist with the patrician accent, stern jaw, and diamond-cutting stare of a very serious man questions him. As evidenced by D.A. Pennebaker's film and other footage from the same period, Dylan was frenetic, sarcastic, confident, and very funny as he conjured both the destination and the map for a new age of music celebrity. The rock star is a seeker of truth and hipster scene maker all at once. This new paradigm for the possibilities of pop gurus both confounded and excited the press, and Dylan played his role masterfully. Journalists sparred with a scruffy-haired, chain-smoking Dylan, whose press conferences from San Francisco to Paris became spoken-word happenings. A flow of questions ranging from the nature of hygiene on the road to the meaning of life would be asked of rock stars for decades to come. And Bob Dylan, well, he was inventing them. How many people who labor in the same musical vineyard in which you toil, how many are protest singers? That is, people who use their music and use the songs to protest the uh, social state in which we live today, the matter of war, the matter of crime, or whatever it might be. Uh, how many? Yes. Are there many? Who yeah, well, I, I think there's about uh, 136. You say about 136? Mm. Or do you mean exactly 136? Uh, it's either 136 or 142. As the press hounded him for explanations about where he was really at and what was it he wanted, Dylan played with them like a cat plays with a mouse, 
cigarette smoke curling to the ceiling, and photo bulbs are flashing. Howl for Carl Solomon. I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves through the Negro streets at dawn looking for an angry fix, angel-headed hipsters burning for the ancient heavenly connection to the starry dynamo and the machinery of night, who poverty and tatters and hollow eyes... Like any master of any art, Bob Dylan has had many teachers. Allen Ginsberg, a pop intellectual pioneer whose creative line of American sexuality and spiritualism links back to Walt Whitman, once said of Dylan, There is a very famous saying among Tibetan Buddhists, If the student is not better than the teacher, then the teacher is a failure. It was Ginsburg symbolically shuckling in a prayer shawl in the background of a video for subterranean homesick blues while Dylan percussively tossed away placards imprinted with the key words of the song in a style anticipating mashups of image, text, and sound nearly two decades before MTV standardized this modus for all media. It was also Ginsburg who offered magnanimous praise, occasional liner notes, and a lot of poetic license as validation of Dylan's gifts, even as Ginsburg's own pop intellectual cultural pull slackened while rock and rolls grew. So this is the context. Dylan is a force of nature disrupting popular culture. He's inherited the mantle of provocation from the beats and its most prominent figure outside of perhaps Jack Kerouac in Allen Ginsberg. And now he's in the midst of a tour that cracks open the possibilities for rock star mythmaking. The scene in I'm Not There brings it all back home. Ginsburg putters up alongside Dylan's limo, and Dylan, played in an almost perfect impersonation by the actress Kate Blanchett, gets asked the question whose answer will define the spiritual, redemptive, revolutionary potential for rock and roll meaning that defines the journey of Dylan's entire career as well. Hey. Hey, isn't that, uh, what's his name? The poet, Ginsburg? Allen Ginsburg? <laughs> oh my God, it is. Wait a minute. Alan thought that was you in there. I don't think you two have met. Hi. Hey. Alan, tell him what you said to that reporter, the one that asked if you thought that Jude had sold out. Well, they're asking you. I said, I didn't know. Perhaps you sold out to God. What does that even mean, man? Well, if your mission was to see whether you could do great art on a jukebox, well, you know, then we all benefited. Profited, you said, by his coercion. That was it. So, what now? Now? What's left? Oh, my salvation. <laughs> well, let's see what we can do.
Oh, he'll give it to you. <laughs> it was Allen Ginsberg, man. See you later, Allen Ginsberg. My salvation. Two words rise with the choppy syncopation that could suggest either sincerity or jest, but only Dylan gets to say them here. It's an answer embedded in a question divided by four syllables, but stretching itself out like the lazy reprise of a song, or maybe hundreds of songs. After Dylan and Ginsburg shake hands goodbye through the window, both vehicles still moving, the tinkling of kitschy Twilight Zone music carries out the scene. Smiling like a stone cherub, Ginsburg veers off the road toward the cemetery of all places, saying, well, we'll see what we can do. Like most of Haynes's film, this exchange between Bob Dylan and Allen Ginsberg is a cut-and-paste dialogue assembled from a canon of all things Dylan that now includes vast treasures and a lot of junk, and a lot of junk regifted as treasures for reflection and speculation. Forty or so studio albums, a warehouse of live recordings, some released officially and most not, scores of interviews, hundreds of books, and then there are the books that Dylan has written, including Chronicles, Volume 1. There's never been a Volume 2, as well as a universe of theorizing, musing, and chatter about what he sings and says and means. I'm not there does a fun, sometimes thrilling job of distilling these vast waters of work and legend into a concoction of those six actors playing Dylan that come and go like songs, from a pint-sized, smack-talking hobo played by ten-year-old Marcus Carl Franklin, to Richard Gere, whose pinnacle scene takes place, accompanied by the band Calexico and guest singer Jim James, in a gorgeous version of Dylan's Going to Acapulco, performed in a town called Riddle, Minnesota. If the creative conceit of I'm Not There rests upon a riddle, asking what the many faces of Bob Dylan are trying to find, then the meeting of student Dylan and teacher Ginsburg offers an answer not only to what Dylan's work has been seeking for all these years, but also what animates rock and roll as a cultural force that it was becoming. The answer, my friend, is blowing everything up. Yes, that's rock and roll. But in the rubble, the fun, the coupling and decoupling, the obsession with sound, is the pursuit through music and text and people for the answer to life's purpose through the music. That's the salvation. A change is going to come. Stairway to heaven. Two tickets to paradise. Get on your knees, boy. It all starts and ends in the same place. Looking for redemption. For salvation that only rock and roll can bring. Do you find yourself like being a more religious person these days? Do you, do you view yourself as a religious person these days? Religious person? Mm -hmm. Religion is, is supposedly a force for positive good. Right. Where can you look in the world and see that religion has been a force for positive good? Where, where, where can you look at humanity and say humanity has been uplifted by a connection to a godly power? Connection to a godly power, meaning to an organized religion? By godly power, do you mean that? I can't look organized. At, I can't look at what organized okay. religion is doing these days and see anything positive that's being done other than 
local corporations are religions. You know, it depends what what you're talking about. Uh, a, a religion, like any, anything is religion. Do you study religion? I'm still. I mean, at one point you you no. were serious. You took on Christianity in a very serious way, and then Judaism in a very serious way. Where do you? Where are you now with all that? Religious religion is is is, is either something that uh, um, is a, is mostly outward appearance. Faith is a different thing, but but. Um, so, you know, how many religions are there in the world? Quite a few, actually. But what is your faith? What do you have faith in? Well, faith doesn't have a name. It doesn't have a category. It's oblique. So it's uh, unspeakable. We degrade uh, faith by talking about religion. Bob Dylan has been wrestling with the question of salvation ever since he was a 20-year-old new arrival to New York City singing See That My Grave Is Kept Clean in a voice that previewed a cast of musical characters containing multitudes. And all of them were searching for salvation. In the words of Greil Marcus, perhaps the most influential thinker about Dylan outside of Dylan, quote, in a signal way, he was the folk, and also a prophet. As he sang and wrote, he was the slave on the auction block, the whore chained to her bed, a questioning youth, an old man looking back in sorrow and regret. Dylan's search for salvation in his songs is literal, mystical, playful, mundane, funny, and transcendent. His revolution his mission and coercion, in the words of Allen Ginsberg, is that he brought the pursuit of the ancient and inextinguishable idea of salvation to the jukebox, to the radio, the record collection, the concert hall, and most importantly, perhaps, to the imagination of a world where traditional religion had lost its ability to do this for millions and millions of people. Dylan has been the singular figure who exploded cultural possibilities for renewed expression of the thoughts, feelings, and rituals traditionally harbored by ancient creeds by gathering the pieces of traditional voices, words, sensations, and needs around him and replayed them in songs. This made it possible and in some ways unavoidable for all rockers who followed him to join in shaping what meaning popular music could glean beyond traditional religion. Just like in I'm Not There, in this podcast, and the book we're working on alongside of it, we are listening to Dylan's songs as a journey through the life-and-death riddle of salvation. We're hearing his work as a collection of recipes for redemption, the repurposing on the purpose of things, meditations on the possibility of meaning in a world in which the traditional myth and ritual of religion had come to do more to distance people than to bring them together. Without Dylan, we imagine that the world and wonder of the ancients would have remained flat to popular culture. But with Dylan, rock and roll came to expand, exploit, inspire, and rule an empire defined by a whole new code for ancient ideas, religious ideas, 
communal and individual rituals that would otherwise have died. Ain't talking. A song from 2006 that will accompany much of this conversation captures the theme of salvation and Dylan's role in it with sweet precision. I practice a faith that's been long abandoned. Ain't no altars on this long and lonesome road, Dylan sings. What's the faith? What does it mean that it has been abandoned? What's an altar? What's the road? In a world where dogma and ritual of the ancients had fallen, great questions of purpose took root in Dylan's work and then spread throughout popular music, shaping ways of making sense of the world that religion had always owned, but for millions of people who inhabited the rock and roll empire could no longer provide. We're suggesting that by the time of his emergence in the early 1960s, the borders of the rock and roll empire, a vast expanse of territory, something like the Roman Empire, plus the quote-unquote New World, had already been forming for centuries of tumult in the battles between various conceptions of religious and secular purpose for humanity. We'll spare you the sociology of religion course, but suffice it to say that after the enlightenment of the 18th century, what we'll call secular culture began to develop, scientific or sensual. Rejecting religious dogma, it spawned a world of entertainment outside of rituals commanded by the church or its aristocratic allies. People could opt out of religious control by the masses, and so much was gained for freedom of expression and the possibility of self-discovery. Ain't talking, just walking, Dylan sings. I practice a faith that's been long abandoned. Ain't no altars on this long and lonesome road. Now, in the annals of the Gospels of Dylan, the stories fans tell about him, Dylan is often spotted wandering, looking for something. One version has him peeking into the window of John Lennon's childhood home. Another finds him searching out the neighborhood where Bruce Springsteen lived as a child and includes law enforcement nearly arresting Dylan, who did not have proper identification at the time, and like not a few wasted, nondescript, profiteering stragglers on nondescript streets, claim to be none other than... Bob Dylan. In another tale, Dylan steps down from his tour bus on a rainy night. The hood of his hooded sweatshirt pulled snugly over his head and ducks into a doorway. A couple passes, and Dylan, head down, is supposedly witnessed by one of his disciples, holds out his hand for change. Maybe he was reaching out, pretending to be a beggar tongue-in-cheek, or hand-in-cheek, or for a thousand and one other reasons why any human being goofs around during a long, boring trip on a bus. But as he once sang in going to Acapulco, Now, if someone offers me a joke, I just say no thanks. I try to tell it like it is and stay away from pranks. After all, like it or not, and with endless curiosity and fans and critics to prove it. Whatever Dylan does, people take notice. True or false, embellished or made up altogether, reaching out for salvation at every single stop on his journey is the essence of Bob Dylan's work. Stories like these 
would have had to have been told whether he meant them to be told or not. The world needed a Dylan figure just when he arrived and made this need abundantly clear. If I wasn't Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan once said, I'd probably think that Bob Dylan has a lot of answers myself. Talk about musicians, uh, you know, maybe one in a thousand are worth listening to. Um, in terms of what they have to say? Yeah, in terms of what they have to say, in terms of what they're putting forth, in terms of uh, uh, the world they're, they, they're, they're involved in, uh, the, uh, you know, uh, in terms of... Uh, in terms of moving you. He showed us that just because the music was innately physical did not mean that it was anti-intellect. He had the vision and the talent to expand the pop song until it could contain the whole world. He invented a new way a pop singer could sound. He broke through the limitations of what a recording artist could achieve and he changed the face of rock and roll forever and ever. Musically, he's not very gifted. You know, he's borrowed his voice from old hillbillies. He's got a lot of borrowed things. He's not a great guitar player. You know, he's, 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 he's invented a character to deliver his songs. Sometimes I wish that I could have that character. You know, because, <laughs> you know, you, you can do things with that character. You know, uh, it's a mask of sorts. Sometimes we wish we had invented that character too. Joni Mitchell. At the death of boxer Muhammad Ali, one of the few pop culture figures in the 60s to have influenced world consciousness at Dylan's scale, Dylan wrote, If the measure of greatness is to gladden the heart of every human being on the face of the earth, then he truly was the greatest. If the measure of the greatest is to open up hearts to meeting and purpose in a medium that would dominate the cultural landscape at the peak of its power, then Dylan, who actually owns a boxing club in LA and works out there once in a while, is right there in the ring with the champ. I bargained for salvation, they gave me a lethal dose, Dylan sings in 1974's Shelter from the Storm. Aren't all people in some way bargaining for salvation? And what happens to that negotiation when old ways of finding salvation have lost currency that had dominated human consciousness for centuries? This journey towards salvation is Bob Dylan's story, and because of his greatness and good fortune to be the right man at the right time, it's our story too. The early 20th century sociologist of religion, Max Weber, wrote, Who knows at the end of this tremendous development, entirely new prophets will arise, or there will be a great rebirth of old ideas and ideals. In other words, with the collapse of the possibility of traditional religion delivering a path to salvation for so many, the need for deep meaning and purpose didn't die. It just took other forms. And Dylan was the key figure in creating the landscape for those new forms and new prophets to take shape. In our next episode, we'll get into how all this rock and roll salvation works. 
We'll start with Bob Dylan and the Ancients and enter a secret rock and roll history of a little number called the Western World and its quest for redemption. It's a line that runs from Pompeii through Shakespeare and Carl Jung to the Kennedy assassination and Sgt. Pepper's right up to today. This has been episode one of Bob Dylan about man and God and law. For show notes, clips, and other good stuff relating to our podcast, please visit mangodlaw.com. I'm Stephen Daniel Arnoff. See you soon. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.